I'm Stephen John Drew from Better Podcasting, a podcast about podcasting, part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find fantastic geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen, Chris, and SP. Welcome to episode 384 of the official Gunna Geek Show. I am Steven, and with me, of course, is Chris Farrell. What's up, everyone? Also, SP is here. Now that Chris is back, I'm just your average fifth wheel again. That's all I am. Uh, are you a fifth wheel? I would say more like a third wheel, because there's only three of us here. I'd say a fifth wheel because, you know, I'm kind of beefy to the point where I just, you know, need a huge truck to pull me along. Oh. The Cybertruck, perhaps? Yeah, tri-motor. Elon, oh. send us Cybertrucks. We'll review them. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point. I don't know that we could talk about the 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 Cybertruck with any form of authority if we didn't have them for review. I, I think that until we are sent a Cybertruck, that it's just going to be biased opinion. Just because you don't we're have to be sent a Cybertruck, you could buy one when they're available. No, no, no. We want it for free. Let's be honest here. Well, I don't have Cybertruck money. I'm sorry. Prefer it to be free, but you know, I'd, I'll take it any way I can get it. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Chris is back this week. If you didn't know this, uh, Chris was away last week. We missed him greatly. We are back. We're we're glad he's back this week. And welcome back, Chris. Why, thanks for having me back, guys. I was afraid you were going to pack it up and take away all my passwords and keys to everything and replace me with Suncast. I mean, well, arguably, it'd be a better show if you replaced me with Suncast. We but. did think about shutting the show down now that mm-hmm. you had left the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I locked myself out so I can change your, your, any account passwords. That's probably just as well, because... <laughs> I don't know if I remember all my passwords. That's <laughs> <laughs> what last pass is for, baby. If you didn't know this, Windows is always an evolving thing. Contrary to them saying that Windows 10 would be the final Windows, we've talked about how Windows 11 is is around the corner. And what did you say evolving or revolving? Revo- revolving is probably more accurate because if you thought 11 was the Windows that was the best, well, as we all know, higher numbers are better, which is why Windows 365 has officially been announced by Microsoft. It's okay. Just keep using Windows 2000. You'll have the highest number then. Oh, it's a very good point. Very good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's finally <laughs> compatible with Norton 365. <laughs> uh, after previous speculation, yes, Microsoft did announce last week that Windows 365 is going to happen. So what is Windows 365? Well, if Office 365 is uh, a little bit of an indication. It, it is what that is. It, it's Windows that's a new service that Microsoft is offering, basically a cloud-based, a virtual PC to customers. 
essentially they're going to take care of the beefy hardware and the beefy OS, no beefy Windows OS, but the beefy OS and virtual machines. And you're just going to connect to said virtual machine, presumably using another piece of equipment. I'm offended. I'm a vegetarian. Fair enough. Uh, Just like applications were brought to the cloud, we are now bringing the operating system to the cloud, providing organizations with greater flexibility and a secure way to empower their workforce to be more productive and connected regardless of their location. That was what Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella said in a statement. Basically, they're trying to eliminate the need for corporations and businesses and things like that that have to invest in a bunch of hardware. That's their target base here is they want people to be able to go and just pay a subscription fee rather than managing the upkeep of the hardware and things like that. Now, what is Windows 365 going to look like? Because as you know, when you have a computer, there's a variety of different ways that said computer could be configured. Well, When they did announce Windows 365, Microsoft listed 12 different configuration types, which varied from two cores up to eight cores, from four gigs of RAM up to 32 gigs of RAM, and from 64 gigs of storage space up to 512 gigs of storage space. So a bunch of configurations options across the board there. How much is it going to be, though? Well, they didn't list a price yet, but there has been a bit of a hint as The Verge did spot that maybe the basic model might be around the $31 per user per month fee. So basically that rules out consumers to me because like even those, those companies that are horrible people and gouge you for financing to finance your equipment because you have to pay high interest rates, that they're still like, yeah, this is a lot of money per month for an average user. Really seems to me pretty clear they're looking towards the corporate side of things, but I guess we'll see what happens and where this price tag and the configuration options finally land when it's all said and done. I think it's interesting, though, to see them going this way. I think it plays well into the point that Chris has actually brought up quite a bit on here is Microsoft's shift in where their business model lays. Chris, what's your thoughts? Well, uh I hope my work ends up doing it right now because we've been working remote for 16, 17 months at this point in time. And I run virtual machines for everything. One of which is a Linux virtual machine. The other is a windows virtual machine through uh, Citrix. If, and we're fully baked into the office 365 environment and things like that. I can see from a large company perspective, we're basically being like, Hey, we don't have to maintain anything on site to have this network connectivity other than, you know, some dummy PCs to log into and things like that. But if you've pivoted towards this heavy telework emphasis, having Microsoft maintain and operate these PCs in the cloud for you, for lack of a better term, probably takes a lot of stuff off your plate. It's the same reason why a lot of things are moving towards AWS. Because instead of in the past where you'd panic because a server blew up and you didn't know what to do, now you go, okay, AWS is spinning up a backup. We'll have one in five minutes. We'll probably have similar kind of things going on with Windows 365, which is, oh, user X's Windows PC is screwed up. What are we going to do? Hit the restore button and it's back in seconds because they just load up an image somewhere else and problem solved. Now, cost, certainly prohibitive for probably small businesses and for people that would just want to try it on their own. But I'm sure that these, these costs, excuse me, are going to scale. And when you start getting into larger numbers, probably becomes roughly equivalent to what 
big companies might be looking at for their IT budget for yearly refreshes of PC hardware and things like that, and Windows licenses and Office licenses, because if they're baking, say, both the Windows license and the Office license into this subscription, you start to get a bit more affordable there. I'm curious to see where it goes. It's obviously not geared towards me as a personal user at home. It'll never replace like my podcast rig or anything like that. But for a work environment, it's very possible that I wouldn't be surprised if in a year or so from now, we pivot towards using Windows 365 for everything since we've pivoted towards using Office 365 for everything. So I'm intrigued to see where it goes and I hope I get a chance to play with it. I think you definitely hit it on the head there with the whole remote environment, but not only that, but the flexible work environment because it, it's harder now to tie a PC to a specific desk and and there's a lot of workplaces that have people desk sharing and things like that. And, and obviously more so pre-COVID, but you know it'll come back eventually. So I think that, that you're right. You could have the virtual computer, the easy, everything's virtual. So everyone always has the same experience day in, day out, no matter where they are, what office they're at, which desk they're at, whether they're in the office or out of the office. Uh, SP, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, are you getting ready to pay your money just so that you can have a virtual PC? So my concern lies in the office that installs this Windows 365 that's a cloud-based OS, and they use it for all their stuff. But then they have a teaming event, and they go splunking for a week. And they have no internet connection to the cloud, so that enables all their Chromebooks useless. That that is a concern if you use anything cloud. It, it, it's a, it's fair. However, I would also argue that it's a great opportunity to do some team building exercises. You know those ones. Maybe I some mean- paid. <laughs> Uh, cave paintings versus using like PowerPoint or something yeah, like that. Or the one where you have to trust your partner and fall backwards. That That's there a good go. one too. We're right never going to get away from having to have full-blown hardware in some instances. Yeah. So, I mean, that would probably be an instance where you would load things up locally onto a laptop before you go on this for any documents or things like that that you may need to review as this teaming event. Because I'm sure at these kind of office teaming events, there'll be PowerPoint slides to support everything and tedious... Sure fake funny videos associated with it. So we'll have that going for us at least. So that is one of the edge cases that does have to be considered, of course, is that if you don't have internet connectivity, much like Albert had pointed out in the chat room also, then you're kind of screwed when it comes to this office, excuse me, Windows 365 environment. Right. I'm thinking of not only splunking and sort of center of the earth exploration, but also other planets. I mean, you can't take <laughs> Office 365 with you without a cloud enabled on the lunar surface or Mars or anywhere else in the solar system. So I really think that Microsoft is limiting its user base to terrestrial surface users that have internet connection. And I don't know how marketable that is these days. Hey, it's fair. To be fair, though, they are continuing to make the existing products, too, as standalone softwares that you can install on your own hardware. They haven't stopped doing local Windows and Office licenses yet. On a serious note, though, um, I I did have a thought, actually, as as you were going on about that, is while technically my computer or my workplace, my, my work 
might physically work when I have no internet. The amount that I can do when I have no internet is is very limited. So, so I think the case could be made that in a lot of environments, if you don't have the internet, whether you're on a physical computer or not, you're basically out of commission as it is. It's just because there's so much internet-based systems and things like that. So I, I think, or, or, you know, network in other regions. So again, you need the internet. Uh, so I think that, that that is a consideration, but you are 100% correct that the Martians are going to hate that they are being alienated. I see what you did. Uh, let's go on to uh, big news. Hey, uh, I heard that that El- Elgato had has a new stream deck. Is that right? That is true. Elgato did announce a new stream deck last week. And Steve and I have talked a ton about how we love our stream decks, how it helps us for our live video and edits and things like that. But no, we're not actually talking about the stream deck with this news story. Aww. We're talking about the Steam Deck that was also announced the same day. Chris, it's, it's pronounced it's pronounced Stream Deck. There's an R in there. Like an, a new stre- steamer for like suits and pants and stuff like that? This is a, uh, a tugboat steaming engine. Ooh, we install ooh. it on the deck, so it's a Steam Deck. Elgato got into the Steam <laughs> game. Is that right? They, they, they made a Steam engine? So this is an Elgato product. Yes, exactly. It's an Elgato product. No, not at all, guys. What we're talking about, and this was announced last week, is that Valve, the same company that brings you Steam and a variety of different games on there, arguably the most popular software out there for purchasing and playing PC games, is getting back into the hardware game again. Now, they've done it before. There were Steam PCs back in the day, the Steam controller, the Steam Link devices, most of which have all gone away at this point in time, which maybe we want to keep in mind as we discuss this news. But last week, they did announce what they are calling the Steam Deck Hardware. What is it you might be asking? It is a handheld device for playing PC games on the go, slated to launch this upcoming December, starting at $399. Now, at the time of this recording, they did do pre-orders already, and it was pretty much you'd put $5 down as a deposit, and then you're put in a queue as they became available, you'd be able to pick them up. Let's get into the meat and potatoes of what makes up the Steam Deck. It is a portable PC. When you look at it and folks have gotten to actually physically touch it and talk about it, IGN had a nice write-up where they got to go play with the Steam Deck for a couple days. It's a portable PC that is slightly larger than the Nintendo Switch. Features a 7-inch 720p touchscreen, two thumbsticks, a D-pad, and a four-button layout on the front. Below those buttons, there are also two very small trackpads on either side below the thumbsticks supposedly to allow for increased precision in FPS games and things like that. The Steam Deck also has eight triggers on the back, four on the device's shoulders, and four more where the pinky and ring fingers rest. So there are plenty of buttons there. It will allow you to map these buttons as you see fit, as you, excuse me, as you see fit for any game you want, similar to what you can do right now using Steam to configure games on your current PCs. What's the draw for a lot of folks here? Well, the Steam Deck is going to run games from a player's existing Steam library. You simply log into your account, and then your catalog of games should show up on the handheld, and you can pick what you want to install and what you want to play. A key caveat for the Steam Deck, it is going to run these PC games on its own hardware. This is not cloud-based, so we're not talking about a uh, Xbox uh, streaming system. We're not talking about Oh, God, what's the Google service? I just forgot all of a sudden. Wow, we rip on it a lot, and I just forgot in Space Canada. Uh, That's how important it is. Stadia. Stadia. It's not a Google Stadia kind of thing. We are using local hardware. 
to, so to do that, we have to have some pretty hefty horsepower. And I'm not going to go into the specifics of the processors and things like that. You can go look them up yourselves, but it is a custom AMD chipset that is sort of on par with the Xbox Series S, but not as many cores is what it comes down to. But also included inside this hardware is 16 gigs of RAM, a micro SD card slot allowing you to expand upon the built-in storage. This is important. We'll get to that in a second. A 7-inch LCD display with a 16 by 10 aspect ratio, 60 hertz refresh, and a 720p resolution. Also, we'll have 802.11ac Wi-Fi radio, so you'll be able to use both 2.4 and 5 gigahertz networks, and also Bluetooth 5.0 for controllers, accessories, and things like that. So you'll be able to wirelessly connect headphones, controllers, things like that. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the base model starts at $399. What does that get you? 64 gigs of storage in eMMC format. Next version up is $529. Is the exact same hardware, but more storage with a 256 gigabyte PCIe 3 NVMe SSD. And it will supposedly come with some kind of Steam community profile bundle, whatever that means. And the top tier Steam Deck clocks in at $649. Again, the same hardware just with a better storage option of a 512 gigabyte NVMe SSD that Valve has referred to as high speed. The operating system on this Steam Deck, it is not Windows, it is Linux-based Steam OS, which should allow you to play all of your Steam games. Valve has said it's an open platform. If you want to install Windows on there, feel free to do that. But what is also important about mentioning that this is an open platform is that means you're not limited to just the Steam game stores. You want to play games from the Epic Game Store, from Uplay, from Origin? Perfect. You can install all of those on there and play them on your uh, Steam Deck. You want to do Xbox Cloud Gaming? Perfect. Launch a browser, log in, you can start streaming games that way. You want to do Xbox Game Pass for PC? You can install games for Game Pass for PC. Although I think you would have to have Windows running to do that because I'm pretty sure it doesn't do Linux games as part of that service. So the hardware is impressive. A lot of people looking at it like, oh, this is the Nintendo Switch killer. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but this is going to allow you to basically take those higher end games that you'd be playing on a gaming PC and play them in a portable format because a 720p display means you're not burning as much energy to try and put out your 4K at 60 frames, at 120 frames per second displays on your gaming monitor. I think it's intriguing. I'm curious to see what happens with it. I don't plan on buying one anytime soon, but two things that I think we should keep an eye on as reviews come out, people start playing with it. Battery life. How long is this thing going to last in an undocked setting? I believe I'd read some articles that said, depending on the game you're playing, you'll get somewhere from two to eight hours of battery life. If you're closer to the eight hour side of things, that's more in line with what we've seen in some of the other portable consoles out there. But if you're playing some hardcore Doom Eternal and pushing a bunch of pixels and have all of your special effects and features on, you're probably closer to the two-hour side of things, which is not necessarily ideal. The other thing we need to consider on here is storage. So the base model comes with 64 gigs of storage, and you can use an SD card to expand it to whatever the size that SD card is. But here's what we need to consider. AAA titles nowadays, they're not tiny. Most of those AAA titles are bigger than 64 gigabytes. So say, for instance, you wanted to play, let's go to an older game, Batman Arkham City or Batman uh, Arkham Knight. Those games are probably 60 to 80 gigabytes. 
the latest Call of Duty, I saw a patch for the Xbox that came out that was 200 gigabytes. So if you're going with the baseline model, it's going to have A, that eMMMC storage, which is slow, and B, not enough storage to store those games. So you're going to be relying on SD cards. So I hope people that were buying this chose to go with the higher storage tier. Just keep in mind, even with 512 gigs of storage, you're going to run out fast. And if you're playing AAA titles on here, you're talking about maybe what? three to four titles you can have installed at a time. So you're going to be doing a lot of uninstall, reinstall, or dumping a lot of things off to an SD card. I think the hardware is intriguing. I think the product is intriguing. I think being built into the Steam marketplace is a huge hook because everyone knows Steam. I'm curious to see what happens with it, but I'm not curious enough to slap my own hard-earned cash down to say, I want to see how this works because I have too many gaming systems already. And in my use case, I'd rather put that money towards building a beefy PC, basically, that could multitask as both gaming and podcast production, audio, video production kind of thing. But if you're someone who's on the go a lot, the Steam Deck could be for you just for a hefty price. I am cautious because of the hardware that you mentioned at the beginning of this. I think that it, it looks like the framework could be really good and really fit a market because they're like... The Switch has picked up for good reason for a large portion, which is the portability, right? Like, obviously, you yes. have people who play it on the TV and things like that, but the portability is huge with it. And so this really could be good because some people just don't connect with the games that are on the Switch. Like, that's the reality is there are some people that they just don't connect with those Nintendo games. So this could be be really good. I, I'm... Uh, uh, truthfully, I think the price might be a little high coming from them. Uh, I, I think it's priced where it needs to be, but because they don't have the reputation that Nintendo did as far as hardware goes, I think that if they were a little lower, they might get a few more people who um, would be willing to take the gamble, but they obviously don't really care, probably. I don't know if they can go much lower and not lose a bunch of money on this it's is fair. part of what's going on with what's going on. And I, I should have mentioned in here, this is similar to the switch in the fact that you can do over USB-C HDMI out to a TV or a monitor or something like that. So in theory, you could, they're going to sell one. They have a USB-C dock they're going to sell or buy a third party one. And you could dock it at a desk or at a TV to play games that way as well. SP, what's your thoughts on this? I know that you have talked a little bit about the appeal to the portability of the Switch before. Uh, and obviously, this is not the Switch, but this is this is a whole bunch of other games now, potentially for you in Switch form factor. As a Switch holdout, long-time Switch holdout, I've been, I've been really looking forward to the next generation of hardware. And I'm really excited that the Steam Deck can do 4K resolution at 120 hertz. I am so going to purchase this because of its 4K compatibility. It's just, it's going to work so great for me. Yeah, you're right. 4K being 720p. Well, if you do HDMI out over USB-C, you'll be able to pull off 4K. Something oh. that the Switch does not currently do. You go only up to 1080p when you are docked with a Nintendo Switch right now. That's interesting, because like, like truthfully, I, I've always struggled for people who are looking for 4K on a small device. I, I, I truly struggle with the argument to be made on that. Um, 
I, I just don't see it on a small screen. But that's actually really interesting having it through the, the uh, USB-C out. Interesting. And the other thing that's really exciting about this for me is it's 5G compatibility. It'll be great. I can do this wherever I am. I don't have to depend on internet. I can just get the internet over 5G. It'll be so great. I'm just looking forward to buying this. Chris, does it have 5G? Oh, I mean, it could. It has USB-C, so just plug in a USB-C dongle or hotspot <laughs> your phone in all <laughs> See, seriousness. I'm, I'm telling you, this is this is really a possibility, but... Uh, no, I didn't see either of those things in the spec, so I was kind of poking fun at it. But I, when I first there heard is about Chris it, Chris, right there, they were smart in the fact they pretty much made a PC that is portable because anything you can do on a PC, you can do on this platform. So the hardware is much more flexible than what you see with, say, the Nintendo Switch. And I don't think it's fair to put them in the same category other than the mm. fact they're portable devices because remember, we're talking about a version of Android running an NVIDIA custom processor versus right. a full-blown what could be Windows PC. See, that's the other thing that we're going to have to remember with all these new devices is that chip availability is going to start hampering uh, the evolution of devices, new things coming to market. We're talking about people buying chips for two years out now, buying batches for two years out for their uh, hardware that they're manufacturing so you're not going to necessarily get faster chips and you're going to have a limited quantity of things to sell much like we've seen so far with the playstation 5 and the xbox x series x whatever it's called it's just not been available and one of the reasons it's not been available it's it's hard for them to find the actual hardware to slap together and then sell it in, in mass volume. So I think we're in an era where we're going to see more individuality like this, smaller batch productions of new devices that might not be evolutionary or revolutionary, more like, hey, we think we can do it a little bit better than before or a different package than before. So I don't know. We'll see if there's more than the Steam Deck and Nintendo Switch. We'll see if other people follow this small form fit factor as we go forward in the next two years of the chip dearth. All I know is that they're probably going to, within a year or two, really regret the name that they chose because uh, I've been doing the research since this was announced and I've, I've gotten on good authority that the following products are going to be made. Uh, Microsoft, I believe, is going to come out with the Team Deck. Uh, I believe dairy farmers are coming out with the cream deck. Uh, there's a certain so they have that, by the way. Yeah, there's a certain sewing machine manufacturer that's going to come out with a seam deck. Uh, hmm. The internet is coming out with a meme deck. Charles Ponzi apparently is coming out with a scheme deck. Hmm. Yeah, the self-help industry is coming out with an esteem deck. Horror movies I are coming out with the scream deck. Are these all using Pentium 5 processors? Yes, yes, which is a great segue to the next one, which is a 1990s soft rock band is coming out with the Extreme Deck. Mm. There's a certain famous actor coming out with the Joaquin Deck. And lastly, Star Trek is coming out with the Beam Deck. All of these things are on the horizon. I've got it on good authority. So there you go. I see. <laughs> Thanks for 
educating us on that, Chris, before I just took us down that terrible, terrible rabbit hole. Uh, the entertaining rabbit hole. That, that was a left turn I wish we wouldn't have taken. <laughs> uh, what's going on with the Orion flight, SB? And this is Star right. Trek related, right? The Star Trek right. Orion? Yeah, yeah. Totally no. Orion totally Pirates. No. No, no, not at all. So we've been talking like last week, we talked a lot about the Virgin Galactic tomorrow as we record. This is supposed to be Blue Origins first operational flight with New Shepard. We've got other things coming on the horizon here. So I just wanted to step back and take a moment and talk about as Stephen called them vehicles. Is that what you said? Vehicles, I believe you, you called them last week. Wessels. I called it a vessel. Wessels. Wessels. I, no, I think it was vehicles. Anyway, <laughs> so the U.S. space shuttle was retired when the Atlantis came down on July 21st, 2011, which in two days will be 10 years ago. And it landed at, at uh, Kennedy Space Center for STS-135. So after that, these are the crewed vehicles that have been developed or are in development or are being talked about that are U.S. based. So you have SpaceX with Crew Dragon, which has made some operational flights already. Starships, there are many copies. You got the human landing system, you got the crewed version, you got the refueling tanker version, and you got the cargo version. And they even have a version, which is kind of like a cross between the cargo version and the human landing system version. That's the planetary landing system. So you can take it to places like Mars and uh, moons of Saturn and Jupiter and so on and so forth. And Let's not forget, they have launched one crude Tesla Roadster. You guys remember that? The Roadster that went up? Sure. Mm. Does it really count as crude? Yeah. You said Starman was an actual person. That's true. Okay, yep. I'll, I'll let okay. it go. So those are the <laughs> SpaceX ones. Boeing has CST-100 Starliner in development that had one failed test so far, and they're looking forward to another one. Lockheed Martin is designing the Orion space capsule as part of the NASA Artemis program. Virgin Galactic, we talked about that last week with VSS Unity. Blue Origin, tomorrow, will be launching New Shepard, and there's actually a whole family of vehicles to go with that, but New Shepard is the one that they're doing, and a possible human landing system to the moon. They lost the competition, but they're lobbying for a double award. We'll see what happens with that. And as an honorable mention, we haven't talked about this much because really, honestly, there hasn't been much news about it. Sierra Nevada Corporation is designing and developing a ship called the Dream Chaser. Now, the first cargo version flight was originally scheduled for 2021. They came out last fall and said, look, the pandemic hit us hard. We cannot go ahead with the 2021 launch. So hopefully in early 2022, we're going to launch it. And then a crude version is scheduled to launch the International Space Station in 2025. So those are the U.S.-based systems. Of course, you have other countries that have crude systems like Russia and China. India is developing one. Japan is thinking about developing a suborbital space plane. And Denmark actually has a entire... It's, it's like us. We're hobby podcasters. They're hobby rocketeers. They're trying to put together the first amateur uh rocket that will take somebody into space kind of like blue origin and virgin galactic so you're not throwing somebody into orbit it'll be an up and down thing not a lot is going on with that there are things that have happened over the last 10 years but it's a much slower space space than we've seen with other things okay so with all of that and we've gone down a list of us based vehicles 
Which one was first in space? All right, this is a good question, especially since we've had VSS Unity last week and we're going to have Origin, Blue Origin tomorrow. So Virgin Galactic was based on Spaceship One, which in June of 2004, June 21st of 2004, actually went above the 100 kilometers. Now, it had two subsequent flights on 29 September 2004 and 4 October 2004. And this wasn't Virgin Galactic. It was technically Paul Allen and Brut Rutan from Scaled uh, Composites that put this together to win the Ansari SpaceX or the Ansari X Prize to put a crewed ship into orbit multiple times within a certain window. Spaceship One is now in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, so it's no longer operational. So I don't think we can count that. And we can't really count Virgin Galactic's first ship, VSS Enterprise, because it never breached that space barrier, whatever <laughs> barrier you're talking about. If you're talking about 62 miles or 50 miles, it doesn't really matter. It crashed on October 31st, 2014 with the accident. So I don't think we can count that. You guys with me on that? Not counting the early Virgin Galactic and the Ansari X Prize? I'm good with it. High okay. five. So let's move forward. New Shepard had its first capsule launched into space above 100 kilometers on 24 November 2015. Now, the current version, which Jeff Bezos is going up on tomorrow, first launched into space on the 12th of December, 2017. So you can go back as far as 2015. I think we're good there. And it's had a total of 15 test flights. So tomorrow will be the 16th flight. Virgin Galactic, its first flight into space with VSS Unity was on 13 December, 2018. So point blue origin. SpaceX is Crude Dragon had its first non-crude test on the 2nd of March, 2019. So again, point blue origin. <laughs> Boeing CST-100 Starliner had its first no-crude test on 20 December, 2019. Again, point blue origin. Not flown into space yet is the SpaceX Starship and as we just discussed, the Sierra, Sierra Nevada Corporation or SNC Dream Chaser. But guys, we're forgetting one. We're forgetting the Lockheed Martin Orion. You guys remember, we might have talked about it on this show before. You remember when that first flight was? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I should, but I you don't. Can see it in the show notes, I guess. I, I, I want to say it was somewhere five years ago. It was December 5th, 2014. What? It was, yeah. Wow. It, Point Lockheed Martin and NASA here. So what is now known as the Exploration Flight Test 1 or EFT-1 launched on top of a Delta IV heavy rocket from the Cape Canaveral Space Center on 5th of December 2014. It accomplished two orbits in a four-hour flight test, which was by the book similar to Apollo 4 test plan, which tested out the Apollo capsule for the lunar launches. Now the test at the time was named the Orion flight test or OFT-1. You might have heard it named that. It is now known as the Exploration Flight Test 1 or EFT-1. This flight simulated nearly all the phases of an Apollo-style lunar flight profile, including a flight beyond the low Earth orbit. And this was the first time that anybody had sent a crewed vehicle, there's nobody in it, but a crewed vehicle 
beyond low Earth orbit since Apollo 17 in 1972. And it also included a splashdown in the Pacific Ocean. Now, Orion is scheduled to fly again as part of NASA's Artemis 1 mission on the 22nd of November, 2021. It is a 26-day scheduled mission, including five days in lunar orbit. It is anticipated there may be some delays in the weeks leading up to launch, COVID-related, hardware-related, whatever. I think we'll be lucky to see that launch within 2021. However, it is coming up, and there you have it. Despite not being in space for six years, Orion was the first U.S.-based crewed spaceflight system into space following the space shuttle retirement. All right. That that surprised me how far back that was. And just to give some frame of mind, I looked it up. The first episode that we ever did of the Gunna Geek Show was in July of 2013. So it was like, like, I don't know, six months after we kicked off this show. So, so no, the year is 2014. Okay, like a so, year and a so half. So a year and a half, sorry, a year and a half after, which is, yeah. which is crazy. That was a long time ago. I, was, I barely remember the first time we ever did the Gunna Geek Show episode. So, I know we've been poking fun at some of the online coverage of the recent launches and stuff like that, where it cuts out, whatever. I went to an oldspace.com article on this, and I watched the NASA feed from the Orion coming down in December of 2014. Yeah, 4K, non-existent. It, it definitely had telemetry issues. But yeah, there you go. Steven's playing with his... Uh, Thing right now making me disappear and come back just like it was on virgin galactic <laughs> last week but if you go back it was spotty the coverage that we did with the recent martian rover coming down was better yeah. than this 2014 coverage on earth so just to let you know how technology ha and uh, the internet connectivity and telemetry has improved in just seven years between now and then uh, it, it was, uh, it, it's amazing what we do now versus what we did then. And that was just 2014. So Orion's going to go up again. I suppose NASA is going to want to be as big of a spectacle as they can possibly be for a governmental organization. And we'll just see what this launch brings. It is, it, it's, it's kind of the culmination of everything happening this year. I mean, you had Virgin Galactic, you have Blue Origin that's going up tomorrow on the 20th of July. You have SpaceX Starship orbital tests in the next month, month and a half. You have Bo Boeing uh, Starliner CST-100 OFT-2 launch on the 30th of July. SpaceX Inspiration4 all-private mission on September 20, uh, or not September 21st, but September 2021. Uh, SpaceX Crew-3 is launching to the ISS on October 31st, and the Artemis SLS launch right now is scheduled for November 2021, the same month that we should probably see James Webb going up. We'll talk about that a little bit. I, I, it's cool to see sort of the progress over the last little bit. Thanks for putting that together there because it's not often that we reflect how, like, it seems like a lot of stuff is happening right now, like in the immediate years here, like the last couple of years. But putting that back to 2014, uh, this is, this is, uh, pretty cool how rapid we are now, but how it's been still to a degree, sort of a gradual thing. So uh, thank you, SP. I appreciate that. And we look forward to the launches happening later this year. Yep. All right, let's move on to a geek adjacent point. <laughs> That's what I'm going to call it here. 
For a few years, we've been loosely following EVs, electric vehicles, on the Gunna Geek Show. All three of us have made it no secret that we all have the desire to get into the electric vehicle market sooner than later. Whether it's SP, kind of pre-ordering a Cybertruck, or Chris, looking to test a Tesla, or me, dogging all over the Mustang Mach-E when it was first released, and then actually seeing it pretty much day one of release in the Home Depot parking lot going, hey, that actually looks kind of cool. Still not a Mustang, but looks looks cool. You we fell in love with it. <laughs> it looked cool. We, we was all, it in the blue color? Because their blue is uh, actually, chef's kiss. It was white. I, I actually thought the, okay. uh, the white one looked nice. Um, but th- these are some of the examples of the things that we've expressed on the Gundagi show here. But there has been a common issue across all of the things that we've talked about when it comes to EVs. And it's that the reality is that the EV market is so new that more often than not, the EVs that we've been looking at aren't exactly checking all the checkboxes that we want out of a vehicle. So we kind of have to settle to a degree for what comes closest. And, And this is just because the EV market is so new and it's a big uphill val- uh, battle for some of these manufacturers to get into the EV market. It's a whole other level of technology that they need to develop. Well, this past weekend, Honda has uh, explained that they are looking to further expand their path of EV offerings. This past Friday, one of the chief executives in Honda did say that they were willing to form new alliances to help make electrification profitable. This is one of the challenges that the manufacturers have been coming up with, which is how do we develop these things while keeping it profitable? Because as we've seen, EVs cost a lot more. So, you know, then you have less consumer interest and things like that. So it's a bit of a weird puzzle that that they're trying to put together all of these manufacturers. But if you didn't know this, Honda currently actually has an alliance partner with General Motors And what they have an alliance to do here is to introduce two jointly developed large-sized EV models in North America using GM's, quote, Altium battery. This is going to be in 2024, and they're going to launch apparently a series of new models at this time as well. So here's the thing, though. They want to go beyond GM. That's what they're saying is they're, they're open to the idea of other alliances to help build the EV market up. And I find this kind of an interesting concept because maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need, instead of a bunch of companies looking to find, like basically put their own research and development into uh, honing in the EV tech and then missing a bunch because that's going to happen as you try to create a new product is you're you're not going to hit everyone out of the park. Maybe this is good as we end up having some of the core EV components basically worked on together, and maybe that'll help bring down the price as well. But I don't know. I just found that was an interesting thing because it's not it's not random new company talking about EVs. It's Honda talking about creating new alliances in the EV market. And so I wanted to bring it up because I like when we talk electric vehicles on the show. Two quick things about it. First of all, this is not really abnormal. Companies or auto companies working together to buy uh, components from each other, like engines or suspensions or whatever. It happens all the time. 
you have different companies like Mazda and Ford. There's a there's a great partnership <laughs> yes. right there, right? Where you have uh, a Mazda engine in Ford, you might have some suspension from uh, Ford in Mazda cars, whatever. So that that's one thing. It, it already happens, and for them to do it in EV, it's no big deal. Number two, I don't know if you guys saw it or not, but Jeep now claims it can make a Jeep version that will drive underwater. You're like, <laughs> what? Why? Why would you need that? Why would you want to drive underwater? Well, one of the use cases I thought was pretty neat says, hey, what if you want to go hiking and you have your Jeep set to automatically drive to meet you at the end of the hike? So you don't have to just go out and back. You can just go in one you know, straight line and the Jeep can meet you. Well, the Jeep can ford itself through water by going underwater as it goes for now i don't know how realistic this is or not but jeep is at least thinking in terms of hey what can we do with electric vehicles which don't need air to breathe as long as the electric components are sealed in uh you know the battery and the, and the motors and that sort of thing so i don't know we'll see what kind of neat things come to market in the coming years what happens though when the gas leaks out underwater it's a huge problem when you have gas in your electric vehicle. What about my blinker <laughs> fluid? Is it going to leak out? Yes, your blinker fluid Damn will it. leak out. And if you've been charged for blinker fluid <laughs> changes in your car, bring it to me and I will change your blinker fluid for you for a nominal fee that is a little less than what the dealership charges. What's your thoughts on this, Chris? So partnerships are, well, they sound great on paper and maybe good things come out of it. And for instance, uh, Toyota and Subaru are partnering on an electric vehicle that I think is supposed to debut 2023, 2024. I can't remember, but that's the the oft-rumored, hey, here's when Subaru is finally getting the electrical ve- electric vehicle side of things. There, it's all well and good. And we've heard other things before of Tesla being open to partner with some folks. And there were some things I was reading about Tesla potentially opening up their supercharger network and some spots in Europe. And I can't remember if it was in Norway, in the Scandinavian region, or if it was in Germany where this was going to be happening, that they are partnering with one of the EV vendors there to basically make it so those cars could work on the supercharger network, which kind of fixes one of the big problems that we still have is these partnerships are all great on paper, but when it comes to selling a car to someone, you still have the problem of, hmm, I don't have the infrastructure around me to be able to do this. It's still an infrastructure problem that needs to be solved. And that's potentially years away from being solved, which is probably good because some of these vehicles are also years away from being completed. But that problem will then continue to compound itself as more people buy more electric vehicles. Then you need to build that infrastructure up more and more. We're sort of seeing that with Tesla right now, where if you buy a vehicle and you want to travel on a holiday weekend, you might be waiting in line at a supercharger, whereas regular travel, you may not. Or if you drive on an ICE vehicle, you just stop at the gas station and you're in line for a much shorter time than you would be to refuel an electric vehicle. So I like partnerships. They sound great on paper. It pushes innovation. But infrastructure is still key if you want widespread electric vehicle adoption. And we've seen some of these companies partnering with, say, uh, different charging vendors out there. For yeah. instance, Ford's Ford Pass product is done via Electrify America and Electrify Canada, things like that. I believe Volkswagen is partnered in some way, shape or form with Electrify America. I think they potentially had to help fund part of it as part of the settlement for the uh, the diesel exhaust fumes stuff that they were scamming on for many years. 
But again, we're, we're still at a point here where if you live in bigger cities or you live in places that have already begun adopting EVs, you're going to have these options. But the rest of us are kind of sitting here waiting. Like my problem I've talked about on this show before, I live in West Virginia. There's no Electrify America presence here. There's no level three chargers here except for one in the entire state that isn't owned by Tesla. So if you want to drive an EV in West Virginia, you have to have a Tesla basically because no other vehicle is going to allow you to travel in a decent amount of time from point A to point B if it exceeds the range of the vehicle. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's actually where we need the partnership is, is on the charging. And if Tesla starts to play hardball, I think that what we need is everybody else coming to a consensus because that, that would force Tesla's hand. It, so I'm not an Elon apologist or anything like that, but where is it in Tesla's benefit to open up their network to anyone at this point? It is the competitive advantage for a Tesla, which is you can travel across the United States. You can travel up through Canada on our network and never have to worry about charging. It's why I can't get a Mustang Mach-E, for instance, because I got nowhere I can charge it around here. No, and that's fair. But I I also think like if you were to equate this to to um, ICE vehicles, you'd be like, this Ford takes only this gasoline, right? Like, you know, and, and Toyota, you have to have this specific gasoline over here. So, so I, I think if you, we really want the EV market to take off, that needs to go away. A and something needs to happen where Tesla's not able to do that. Or, or there is, uh, um, they're forced not to do that. Where How are you going to force them to do that? Well, you could mandate it. That could be one thing. There could be legislation that man mandates it's it. It's not going to work that well here in America. But what would work is if you had wide adoption within metro areas first, like New York or Los Angeles. And that's something that I've been thinking of for a while, actually. If you transform the LA scape and take all of those vehicles, those gas-powered vehicles out, and you replace them with EVs, just think of the pollution uh, clear-up that'll happen because of it. And I think you're going to get a, a lot more wide adoption beyond LA once that happens, because you can see what the pandemic did and people not traveling around. Well, you bring all the cars back and they're electric cars and you still have the lack of pollution because of it. I mean, you still have weather issues because of uh, the, the, you know, the, the climate and whatever, but at least you uh, get to see the effects of pollution uh, leaving and the wide adoption is going to mean that there are going to be, there's going to be innovation on what that infrastructure is within the metropolitan area because you're still going to have to have refueling stations or recharging stations throughout the metro area so they're they're going to be able to uh, develop and design and adopt what is economically uh, best in areas like that you know what the market will prevail and then they'll push that out throughout the rest of the country. It's, it's going to take a while. It's not going to be overnight. It took a long time to put the rail line yeah. in the United States to begin with, you know, a hundred years or whatever it was before you connected one part to the other. And then how long did it take for the Eisenhower interstate system to be put together? And it, this is just the next evolution in that. And there's legislation being debated in the United States, I imagine in Canada and a variety of other countries as to how to properly expand and roll out this infrastructure. 
and mandates to push towards more electric vehicles and things like that. So we're years away on a lot of these things. The the other thing is, though, what I was saying earlier, though, is, is if enough other companies came to an agreement on a standard, then that's a lot more companies that can put up to they can split the costs of of going toe to toe with Tesla on on the network. Here's the thing, Stephen, as a Tesla driver, you can just buy an adapter for most of those other networks out there and hook your car into it. Yeah. But but what my point is that Tesla might have a huge market share in the EV right now. That's that's going to come to a crashing halt. But that's going to with so many other companies getting into this, their market share is going to dwindle. Like unless they do a, a huge shift on what their target demographic is, their market share is going to crush, get crushed when all these other manufacturers start to put up EVs because there's going to be more companies making Teslas or making electric vehicles that is going to probably appeal to more different types of people. So then you have Tesla being like, well, come here, we we have the charger. Oh, but you got to pay a significant more or oh, our vehicles don't match your needs. No, at the end of the day, people are going to want the vehicle that matches their need. And so if you have a bunch of people that are companies that are are making these standardized charges, who cares if, Tesla, if people get an adapter for a Tesla? Then I think it, it kind of I, forces Tesla to, to either open up. The point I'm meaning there is these other EV vendors can't say, hey, here's an adapter to work on Tesla's supercharger network because Tesla controls their own network, whereas other EV vendors are reliant on these other networks being built up that they don't control. Tesla's secret weapon was they control their network. One of the big factors, I think, that is going to start tipping scales in this whole thing will seriously be the Ford F-150 versus the Cybertruck. We'll see what the market bears a few years after the introduction of both vehicles. That's true. And and see how it's utilized within the country. It's it's a crapshoot now, honestly. I do like the Tesla system. I like the infrastructure that's been put in place right now. But with the advent of more utilization in in like the Ford F-150, which has the power bank on it, which will be of use for construction sites as well as to power your home in emergency cases. I th- I think you're you're just going to get a lot of people that are going to go in different directions. Besides, Tesla's not just cars. I mean, you have that whole house battery thing. You got the solar cells on top of your house for a roof and stuff like that. So I don't know. We'll see what the market bears over time. Will Tesla maintain itself as a car company long term? I, I don't know. Right well, now, there's- it's hard to tell. They're still promising the sub $30,000 like two-door Model 2 is what I think is got called at one point in time that's supposed to be the more widespread, more cost-effective. Because remember, they did put out the cost-effective like short-range vehicles, and those aren't even on the menu anymore. Would that be, in your opinion, like a Volt or a uh, Prius uh, competitor? That's kind of how people had phrased it. I mean, this is all pie in the sky stuff that has been mentioned in passing that I don't think there's any official stuff on. But we're talking like the economy sized vehicle that's a sub $30,000 EV that would work in the supercharger network and things like that. And that's how you potentially spread adoption. Because remember, their plan has always been Start with the high-end things so you can start building lower-end things, hence the reason why we had the Model S that came out originally at like 100 grand before we got down to the Model 3, where when it launched, they had, what, $39,000 baseline Model 3s, mm. something like that, which is kind of in line with some traditional vehicle prices out there. 
you're still buying a car that has a shelf life on it because the battery can only last so long. Oh, so yeah. You sell that thing right before the battery warranty runs out. Yeah, it's, it's a 10-year car. It's not yeah. like a gas car where you can press it to 15, 20 years. So you are buying it for less period of time. Although with all the computers in today's cars, I'm not sure you can really do that. <laughs> know, we'll see. I mean, I'm running into that issue as you are too. So we'll yeah. See. Well, thanks for entertaining my EV talk. I needed that. I had that itch to be scratched. I've been waiting for that for a while. I like those talks. Uh, Chris, what's going on with OLED switches? Yeah, so we'll power through and make this one quick because this happened while I was away and I think while part of our hiatus was going on. But Nintendo announced and has actually put up pre-orders that have been selling already for the new version of the Nintendo Switch. And no, this is not the oft-rumored Nintendo Switch Pro that everyone was expecting, although it does have one similar thing to what was rumored to be coming in that. It is the Nintendo Switch with OLED screen that was announced. So what is different between the new Nintendo Switch with OLED screen and the regular one you can buy right now? Well, you get a larger 7-inch OLED display, still at 720p. There is a reworked kickstand on the back of the Nintendo Switch now, so the kickstand runs the width of the Nintendo Switch, which is awesome because the kickstand is flimsy on the current one. And they are creating a new dock for the Nintendo Switch that has an Ethernet port built into it for people that want to hardwire their devices. The rest of the hardware with this Switch is pretty much the same. I think they upped the storage to 64 gigs of storage instead of 32, and I think they did something to rework the speakers a little bit. But the new Nintendo Switch with OLED display will be clocking in at $349, while the regular version will still be out there for $299, and then at $199, we'll have the Nintendo Switch Lite. I wanted to bring this up basically say, hey, we have new product coming, which then kind of led to some more news that shook out of it, where Bloomberg reported last week that their analysts were saying the OLED version of the Switch would have higher profit margins for Nintendo. Because, hey, the hardware is basically the same. We're just swapping in an OLED display. And analysts were estimating that the extra cost of $10 per unit would be incurred. So Nintendo would still, in theory, be making more money on their $350 console. Where this gets really interesting is Nintendo actually fired back on this, which is very rare for Nintendo. They generally offer a no comment or don't weigh in on things. But on July 15th, they fired back and say, news report on July 15th, excuse me, a couple days ago, they fired back and said a news report on July 15th claimed that the profit margin of the Nintendo Switch would increase compared to the regular Nintendo Switch. To ensure correct understanding among our investors and customers, we want to make clear this claim is incorrect. They did not, however, provide any information about the profit margins of either Switch consoles, so we can probably assume they're making a little bit of money on it still, but not a ton. Why I bring this news up is because as part of this statement, they seem to pour a little dirt over the grave of the rumors of the Nintendo Switch Pro, saying they have, quote, no plans for launching any other model at this time, end quote. Presumably a shot at other Bloomberg reports that were saying the new version of the Nintendo Switch would come with not only an OLED display, excuse me, display, but more powerful internals with the ability to output 4K resolution by making use of NVIDIA's DLSS technology. Nintendo has said no they have no plans for launching any model at this time. That could mean a year from now, those may change, anything like that. But the Nintendo Switch Pro rumors that we've been hearing a lot about for the last six to eight months, Nintendo kind of shot those down. And with the launch of a new SKU for the Nintendo Switch with the OLED version, I don't think that Switch Pro is coming anytime soon, guys. 
Well, this is just all sorts of disappointment. I mean, why do we need it, though, either? Because there's no games that would make use of it. That's true. You know what the Switch Pro is? The Steam Deck. Steam Deck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then there's a theme to my news today. We're talking about <laughs> handheld gaming devices. But <gasps> yeah, I was most intrigued by the fact Nintendo actually fired back and commented on this. Yeah, that, that is surprising. I also was surprised that they also said we we uh, we will make sure that the Joy Cons are perfect on the new version as well. Well, it does use the existing Joy Cons, so we'll still have all the same problems of Joy Con drift and breakage as we've seen before. So that should be great. It's why I have six sets of Joy Cons in the house. I think. I, I think this gets back to my comment before about the manufacturability of, mm. of these things and uh, component availability to make these things i mean not just the chips we're all we're all talking about chips because they affect everything out there but it's more than that and uh, it's a supply chain issue it's availability for factory uptime with workers uh, uh, issue and this is going to be ongoing for the next year and a half from everything that i've heard so far year and a half two years and with nintendo coming out and saying we can't, uh, we're, we're, we don't have anything in the pipeline. They might have something in the pipeline. They just don't have confidence in their ability to manufacture and distribute it, in my opinion. I still don't understand the want for the Nintendo Switch Pro that everyone has. Because existing games, maybe you could upscale them to 4K, but you can do that with a nice receiver right now. I, I don't get it. And we're going to run into the problem we ran into with the 3DS and the new 3DS and things like that where titles came out and it said it only plays on this version of the 3DS and up. And you're like, well, based off Nintendo's naming convention, I don't know what 3DS version that is. And that's my concern with what happens with the Pro is they could mm. say, hey, the new Metroid Prime X is coming out, but it's only playable on the Nintendo Switch Pro and up. So then everyone's like, oh, so my hardware I bought now, I'm fragmented within a generation and can't play games. Uh, I was yep. glad to hear, though, you said a reworked kickstand, because I have to say, the kickstand on the original Switch, someone should be ashamed that they designed that. Yeah, think of a Surface Tablet's kickstand, and that's similar to what the kickstand looks like on the back of the new Switch. Okay, so it's better. That's good. Yeah. Runs well, the entire width of the dis of the console now. Well, thank you very much for enlightening us on that. Uh, we, you are always our game guru. SP, why don't you round us off with some good news news? I knew you guys would like this. I'll make it really quick. We haven't talked about it on the show because other things have been more newsworthy than this, but I know you guys like the Hubble. So the Hubble Space Telescope payload computer from the 1980s shut down on June 13th, 2021. NASA then underwent extensive troubleshooting to find the cause and bring the science juggernaut back online you guys like that juggernaut the science juggernaut i made that up i like, it. like it i like it 10, out of 10 would recommend okay. <laughs> ultimately nasa was able to switch to a backup computer and restart operations as of july 5th or 17th 2021 that was two days ago as we record this hubble's orbit should be stable until the 2030s and it is hopeful that the telescope will continue functioning well into the 2020s there are no missions right now planned to go service it, so it is scheduled to deorbit at some point in time. NASA's next great observatory, the James Webb Space Telescope, is scheduled to launch later this year and will travel to its Lagrange Point L2 operational site before fully deploying and commencing science observations a few weeks after liftoff. Since James Webb will be dependent upon onboard coolant to function, 
The design mission length is only five years. They're hopeful to get about 10 years out of it, but the design length is five years. James Webb will not be able to be serviced like the Hubble since it will be stationed in an orbit 930,000 miles from Earth, unlike the 335-mile-high orbit of the Hubble. And as an aside here, guys, I have heard talk of wanting to fund a private servicing machine up to the Hubble to change out some components, to reinvigorate it, and to raise it up so that it has more useful service life. And honestly, with the developments with Starship alone, this is now a possibility. That's cool. I never thought of that. I, you know, obviously I've been quick to get on the SB. We're going to tell you how much we love the (laughs) Hubble train just because it's fun. Um, But that does open up a, a whole other idea of use is like... This is obviously working now. We can now say it is working still all these years later. Yes, I'll admit that James Webb is going to be a whole lot more that offers us. And as as the current plan, the idea is Hubble goes away, James Webb comes in. So that's the current framework we're working with, is that one goes out and the Hubble is disposed of. If we have a private venture that goes and does this. Now, that is a whole bunch of other still decent information that can be used. I don't know, do they do it for schools? Do they give time for other uh, other uses? It, it could really, really open up um, more scientific research that, as we currently are working on, doesn't exist. I don't know how long it's going to be able to function even with servicing missions. I mean, components are just going to wear out mm. across the in- entirety. And, uh, you know, you're going to need new solar panels to generate new electricity. You're going to need new batteries and that sort of thing. Uh, so it is possible. I just don't know how long. It's a 30, 31-year-old mm-hmm. device right now. Uh, imagine your oldest car that you've ever driven and owned, and then multiply that by however many other years it needs to get to 31. That's what the Hubble is right now. It's been pinging around with space debris, you know, little tiny meteors and little sand disks up there. And and honestly, even propellant from the space shuttles that have been gone up to service it or launch it to begin with, the, that propellant is in the same orbital path. So it could be... Uh, intersecting with the Hubble uh, as it comes around as well. So it it just gets beat up over time. I don't know how much longer it's going to be able to be functional, even with a servicing mission. The real hope for real diehard fans, as you guys are yourselves, is to actually bring it back to Earth. And one of the options is to recondition it and relaunch it. I think that's probably not a great idea, but it is a possibility with some people. And and if you have somebody that comes along that's a billionaire and has enough money, they can fund the mission. So it, it's possible. I just don't think it's going to be great. And as you mentioned, you can still get scientific use out of it. And it doesn't have to even be schools. It could be legitimate scientists using space Man. on board the Hubble. So we'll, we'll just see where it all goes. But for now, the Hubble's up and running and they just gave some great scientific uh, discoveries just this year alone. And we just don't have time to go into it. But yes, Hubble is up. It is working and it is doing good stuff even now. So you might say that it's more resilient than James Webb has been. 
it's definitely more operational than James <laughs> Webb because James <laughs> Webb hasn't launched yet. Well, thank you for enlightening us on that and telling us all the reasons why the Hubble is a superior product. Appreciate that. Jeez. When you guys see some scientific results from James Webb, you guys are going to start eating those words. But that's a, a few years it. from now. You know what? You have said it, it before. You said it before. <laughs> I believe I just that. I on because it was fun. <laughs> I, 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 I'm I a troll. At this point, I'm thinking there's a higher chance that Ford creates a uh, charging network to rival Tesla than there is James Webb going to space. <laughs> I mean, if Electrify America expands like they say they're going to, in theory, it could happen. I mean, what? <laughs> I, I'm not going to debate you because, I mean, I've seen rockets blow up before on launch. So I, I just, that was, I think this is going to so be good, bad. but we'll see. I know. And they really don't have, they have backup hardware, but it's going to take years to put it <laughs> together so uh. all right well that's gonna go ahead and take us to the end of the show before we wrap up i just want to remind everybody we're part of the gunna geek network the gunna geek network has a bunch of amazing content on it including all things good and nerdy podcasts which you can find on sundays at what time chris farrell 11 a.m eastern as well the gunna geek network has legends of shield podcast which you can find when sp it depends on what multi-universe you're talking about. <laughs> in our universe. Oh, in our universe, it would be 7 p.m. on Thursdays, Eastern. So Perfect. And this week, I believe that you were going to be discussing Black Widow, you said, right? Yep. We'll be discussing Black Widow, and we will be up to date on everything, just looking for what if. We will, uh, beyond that, be talking MODOK and possibility and expose into Kevin Feige. Ah, so that's going to go ahead and wrap us up. So for episode number 384 of the official Gunna Geek show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying, yes, we do need a better charging network. I need my EV and I need lots of places to charge it. I'm SP saying you heard the Canadian apologize again this week. Be prepared for it next week. <laughs> I'm Chris. I've spent way too much time researching EVs. Way too much. Bye. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week. <laughs>